We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. If not, it'll be on the screen. And I actually, I want to do something a little bit different. I actually want to invite you to stand up for the reading of God's word. I, I grew up in a tradition that did this on occasion during different seasons. And it's just a symbol that out of reverence and recognition that God's word has authority over our lives and has authority in us. And so we want to do that. So we'll read Mark chapter 8. We'll start in verse 14. Now they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember... When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? You may be seated. I'm sure many of us are fairly familiar with the Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, took a sharp knife and he cut out all of the parts that he found problematic. I believe you can go see it in the Smithsonian in, the, in Washington, D.C. And Jefferson is on record by saying, we need to winnow this grain from the chaff. We need to take out the good parts of this book, the parts that are believable, the parts that will withstand the test of time, and we need to get rid of all the garbage, everything that doesn't make sense. He wanted to make the Bible believable and lasting. He wanted to make it relatable to his culture that was steeped in the Enlightenment. And some of what Jefferson cut out is as follows— Right, the, the, gospel, the book begins in the gospel at Jesus' birth. But the birth doesn't have any shepherds or angels or wise men or a star. It just has a normal birth that's pretty unremarkable. Compared to Jesus' birth, birth is very remarkable. In Matthew 12, Jefferson keeps when Jesus says, It is lawful to do well on the Sabbath. But he cuts out the next verse of Jesus actually doing well on the Sabbath where he heals a man with a withered hand. Jefferson keeps when Jesus says to the blind man, you are not blind because of your sin or your parents' sin, but he fails to include when Jesus gives him his sight. Jefferson also has the woman who anoints Jesus' feet with her tears and hair in the alabaster jar of perfume, but then he leaves out when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. In Jefferson's version, Jesus dies and remains dead. The end. The Jefferson Bible. 
Peter Manso, in his book on the Jefferson Bible, writes this. He says, The text often has a feeling of series of jokes without their punchlines. Jefferson apparently never contended with the possibility that, without all the stories he rejected, it's unlikely we would have heard of Jesus at all. Jefferson passed along a version of Christianity that worked for him. A God that thought like him. A God that looked like him and a God that was essentially him. Right, His faith was steeped in a particular ideology. It was steeped in logic and reason, that of the enlightenment. That's what Thomas Jefferson was trained in. And what an ideology is, it's a system of man. Right? It, ideologies are human-centered. They put humans' thoughts and ideas at the center. It's a good noise every, every time I talk. Anyway, they put humans' ideas and thoughts at the center rather than God's ideas and thoughts. God's word. Ideologies bring culture to God's word rather than bringing God's word to culture. And when we follow these human-made ideologies, rather than God, we begin to worship a God who looks a whole lot like us. A God that works for us rather than the God who is. Thank you, Jeremy. There we go. Tim Keller writes, if God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you worshiping a God made in your own image? Or maybe more accurately, are you worshiping a God that's made in your idealized image? In your projected image. Because my hope is that we can die to the God that is made in our own image. And we begin to live under the authority of God's word and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because it's only when we do that that we can experience fullness of life and abundance of joy. And so if we go back to the text of Mark chapter 8, the context is important. Jesus, at the beginning of the chapter, had just fed the 4,000 out of very few loaves of bread, and he had abundance of it left over. And as soon as that took place, the Pharisees came up to him and had the audacity to say, Jesus, give us a sign so that you can prove who you are. Right? And, and it's... Jesus is confused because they either just saw what Jesus just did or at least heard about it, but yet they're still demanding a sign. And then Jesus and the disciples get in the boat to go across to the other side, and this is where we find our text. And it's a strange scene where the disciples begin talking about physical bread and forgetting it, but Jesus talks about something altogether different. And Jesus says to the disciples, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And upon first reading, this is strange because the Pharisees and Herod are total opposites. 
The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day that were supposed to uphold the morality of the community. They supposedly believed in God. And then you have Herod, who's the government, right? And, And they were most definitely not moral people. They ruled over the Jewish people on behalf of Rome. And they did not believe in God. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what connects the Pharisees and Herod? Why is Jesus making this connection between two ideological opponents? And what Jesus does is he connects him with the use of the word leaven. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And so what is leaven or yeast in some translations? Leaven was the rising agent in bread. It's what makes it big and fluffy and delicious. But in the New Testament, leaven is often used in a negative connotation. In the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, it most often refers to the hypocrisy and false teaching of the Pharisees. One of the only positive uses of it in the New Testament is found in Matthew chapter 13, where it refers to the kingdom of God and how it's growing and is continuous in operation. And so what does it mean in the Gospel of Mark? What does it mean here? And I think part of it, some want to connect it to the Pharisees and Herod's desire for political power. Others want to connect it to the fact that they're both demanding a sign for Jesus to prove who he is. And then some simply want to connect it to their united opposition to Jesus. And I really, I think it's a mixture of all three because no matter which one, it leads to an opposition of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And so I think the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod is the corrupting power and continuous growth of it. This desire for control, this desire to have power that leads to a refusal of recognizing and accepting the truth. Jesus himself. And I think we can probably get behind this, right? When Jesus is saying, yeah, that of Herod, an immoral government who is ruling over God's people, and that of the Pharisees who Jesus time and time again critiques and warns, we sitting in this room can say, yeah, we do need to beware of the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees. But we have to remember who Jesus is talking to in this text. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to his followers. The disciples who have just seen a mighty miracle of Jesus feeding the 4,000 have been called by Jesus and heard Jesus' teachings and are in literal, close, physical proximity to Jesus. And so Jesus warns them of this leaven. And you know what the disciples' response is in verse 16? And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They totally miss it. This would be as if I go home after work today and I walk in and my wife says, Sam, I had a really, really tough day. And I look at her in the eyes and I just kind of say, what's for dinner? Right? It's, It's just like a total, like I'm not engaging in that. And Jesus is not talking about physical bread. He's talking about something much deeper. And Jesus is shocked by the disciples' response or lack of it. He's shocked by the fact 
that they do not realize the obvious leaven, corrupting power and growth of it that is in the Pharisees and Herod is also in them. And so Jesus goes on and he asks a series of questions. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? Do you not remember what I just did? And how I just fed the 4,000. And you're talking about how you forgot bread? One commentator is discussing the disciples' response. Writes this. He says the disciples are unaware of their actual condition. The danger is more deceptive in their case. Since they are in daily contact with Jesus. And as in the case of Jesus' mother and brothers, the fact that they are in physical proximity with Jesus may lead them to presume they are also with him in purpose and mission. Their proximity to Jesus must flow into understanding and understanding into faith, or else, like Judas, it will in the end inoculate them to the meaning of his person and work. Here's where it gets a little bit personal. Right, Jesus talking to his disciples is saying, you know what? Where they're at is actually more deceptive and more dangerous than where the Pharisees are at. Because the disciples are actually following and in close relationship to Jesus. And so what they do is they presume, they assume that they're aligned with his mission as well. They assume they have it all figured out, that they're good to go. And I wonder if this is us as well. Because many of us have grown up in the church. Or maybe you've attended Christian schools all your life. And most certainly if you're here and you attend Dort, you go to a Christian university that tries to thread God's mission and purpose into each course and each co-curricular that we do. And so we are in close proximity to Jesus. Or at least it appears that way. But Jesus is warning us as well to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And so I want to ask you, are you following a particular ideology rather than God's word? Or maybe are you following an idealized version of yourself rather than God? Maybe it's in your political party. right? Maybe God looks like the religious conservative and hates the irreligious progressive. Or maybe God looks like the grace-filled progressive and hates the fundamentalist conservative. Right? Anne Lamott writes this, You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Does the God you follow hate all the same people you do? I think sometimes our desire for power our desire for comfortability, our, our desire for the fact that sometimes we just don't simply understand scripture or wrap our mind around how God could say that or what this means. Sometimes those desires cause us to make God in our own image. Here, here's me being honest. One of the places in scripture that I just can't ever get is Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. 
Jesus has died. He's resurrected. This is the new church. It's exciting. They lie and all of a sudden are struck down dead. Can I be honest? I hope I can say this. I hate that part of scripture. Is that bad? I don't like I do not. I don't know what to do with it. I wrestle with it. I don't. I, I've never preached on it. Maybe I should. But it's hard. There's all of, for us, there's all of those pieces of scripture where we just don't know what to do or that make us frustrated or we want to cut out just like Jefferson does or we disagree based on our own personal experience. But when we let those desires control us rather than God's word, that's when God begins to look a lot like us. And maybe that's one of the downsides to podcasts and getting to follow whatever pastor you want on social media because we get to pick and choose who we like and who agrees with us and then we're just stuck in this cycle of only listening to people who always agree. Let me ask you this. Would you rather broken, fallen humanity determine what is true and best? Which is what's found in the God that looks like us or would you rather a kind, loving faithful, gracious God determine what is true and best, which is the God that's found in the Bible. Jesus asks an important question here. He says to the disciples, and do you not remember? In the context, he's saying, hey, disciples, do you not remember what I just did? Do you not remember that I just fed the 5,000? But I, rem- I wonder what he would say if he was asking us. Dort University, church of 2021, Jesus followers, do you not remember everything that I did and said? Do you not remember the New Testament? Do you not remember the cross? And maybe even more specifically, he would say, do you not remember what I said just a few verses after this story? In Mark chapter 8, verse 34. This is the same chapter of Mark. This is what Jesus says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then verse 38, listen to this. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you got to deny yourself. You got to pick up your cross. You got to pick up your instrument of death and follow me. And if you're ashamed of my word, he will be ashamed of us. I don't like reading that as much as you probably don't like hearing that. Oswald Chambers writes in discussing this text, he says, The cross is the gateway to the life of God. And the issue is when we follow a God that's made in our image, it puts us in in the position of power and in the position of control. But if we want to experience full and abundant life that Jesus offers, if we want to pursue fullness in our spiritual life, we must die to ourselves and not put ourselves in positions of worldly power. We must must not make us the judge of what is good and what is bad in this book. We must surrender to the word of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
But this is hard. This is really, really difficult. And I want to just, in some ways, do a brief pause and give us three very quick reasons why I think this is so hard for us right now in our culture. I think the first reason this is so difficult is we want full life without death. We want a Christianity without a cross. But death always precedes life in the Christian walk. Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We want the easy road, but following Jesus is difficult. Here's another reason why I think it's so hard to surrender to the word of God. is because we're, more, we're formed more by the algorithm on our phones than God's words in our Bibles. Just heard a stat on a podcast. The average Christian millennial consumes 3,000. The stat is probably the same for Generation Z as well. The average Christian millennial consumes 3,000 hours of content in a year. Podcasts, social media, TV shows, movies, news sources. Do you know of those 3,000 hours, how many are explicitly Christian content? 150 of those hours. So that means for every 20 hours of non-Christian content, we're consuming one hour of Christian content. And so we are being more formed and shaped by the algorithms on our phone and the media in our world than we are by the word of God. So of course we will fall prey to the ideologies of our world and of course we will worship and follow a God that looks like us. But we need to be a people that reads and is shaped by God's word. Proverbs 4 says, my child, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, because they are life and healing to all who find them. And here's one of the last reasons why I think we find it so difficult. Because many of us in this room have been wounded by religion and the church. You've been hurt by a pastor. You've been shamed by Christians. You've been coerced by the Bible. And you've been manipulated by it. But can I tell you, I just want to tell you that I'm sorry, and that's a very real reason. And I just want you to know that Jesus' arms are open, and he wants to hear your pain and your frustrations and your anger, and he wants to know your doubt. He wants to know what you don't like in this book. He wants to know what you disagree with and what you struggle with. And can I just tell you that I believe doubt is the seedbed for faith? I think that's where faith begins when we come to Jesus rather than run away from him and tell him those. That's where faith can flourish and it can become real. And it's no longer the faith of our parents and it's no longer the faith of our church tradition, but it is the faith of the God of Scripture. And you know what happens when we follow a God that looks like us? We make Scripture really, really sad. Daniel Silman writes in a book or in an article on Christianity Today about the Jefferson Bible. He says, a snip here and there doesn't fix the text. It just leaves weird holes. And perhaps this temptation is common. We seek to make the scripture sublime with our revision, but we only succeed in making it sad. 
When we try to make scripture fit our culture, when we try to say, hey, look at this God, he's very relatable. When we want people to be in awe of it, which they should, when we take our own revisions, when we follow a God who looks more like us than a God of the Bible, we make scripture sad. And no one wants to follow a God like that. But as we end, let us not forget that we serve a God who walked the road of death first. He gave us the pattern first. What follows Jesus saying, die to yourselves, deny yourselves, in each synoptic gospel is the story of the transfiguration. And the transfiguration is this scene where Jesus and two disciples go up on the mountain and Jesus is in his full glory. They're visited by Moses and Elijah. It's an incredible scene. And Peter is like, Jesus, let's stay here. Let's stay the night. Let's be here. And, and just so you know, I'm pretty sure Jesus probably wanted to stay. If praying in the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of his life that he would not have to die on the cross, that the Lord would take the suffering from him, he didn't want to do it. That wasn't his desire, the pain and the separation from the Father. But you know what Jesus did? He turned his back on glory and he came down the mountain so that he could identify with fallen and broken humanity. So that he could identify with me and with you. And as scripture says, he set his face toward Jerusalem. He set his face toward death on a cross for us. So that we may have access to the life of God, the abundant, full life. But the way of life is actually death. And so, Dort, I desire that we as a campus community will experience the fullness of God. But this only happens through dying to self. And so let's die to a God that looks like us. Let's die to our sad Christianity and surrender ourselves to God's word and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's have a Christianity with the cross. Let's be a generation of people who love and read and know God's word. And let's be a generation that has open arms for all those who have been wounded by religion and the church and the past. So that we may experience full life and that others will come to know the living God and experience full life as well. That is our call. So Jesus, thank you for your word. May we be a people who love it and read it and know it. May you open our eyes to reveal the places where we followed a God that looks like us more than who you actually are. And may you be glorified and made known because we are a people who love God's word and surrender to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you leave this place, go and die so that you may live. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.